We uh, are just three days away from Christmas. Sometimes it's easy to get wrapped up into, oh man, I didn't get what I wanted for Christmas or whatever it may be. And I'm just so thankful that we can come back to the scriptures tonight and we can see the wonderful name of Christ. We can see how God describes him in Isaiah chapter 9. And, you know, throughout the, the last month or so, as we've been talking about God with us, I've just really tried to uh, shape for us the, really the need from Scripture that we have for the Savior. Man, there's nobody like our Savior. There's no one like our Redeemer. There's no one like our God. And I tell you, we of all people have the most reason to be thankful. We of all people have the most reasons to, to be grateful and excited and jubilant this season. And though there are times where Christmas is hard, I'm thankful that God walks with us through those. I'm thankful that He doesn't neglect us even in those seasons that are so difficult because He truly has been born Emmanuel, God with us. And so as we, we saw, we saw in the Garden of Eden earlier this month that Adam and Eve walked with God and, and they had that relationship. Even as they sinned, and uh, you know, God had a plan for them uh, and a plan for us today. And the Lord sought them out and He went looking for them and had a desire that they be able to walk and commune with Him once again. And so eventually we see that in the Garden, God covered them with animal skins and, and promised them a deliverer. Then... We see that through the ages, God shaped history and periodically revealed more and more about the coming Deliverer. God spoke through His prophets, and He narrowed the possible families of descendants to Abraham. Then He narrowed it through His son Isaac, and then eventually through David. And God told how the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in the book of Micah. And in Zechariah 12.10, God spoke of how He Himself would be pierced. And Isaiah 53 described him as a suffering servant who would bear our sins. You see, God had a plan through all of that. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 1, God uses one word to bring a ray of hope in a world that was potmarked by sin. In a world that was just, in many ways, desperate. Consider the power of this one word. If you look in Isaiah 9 and verse 1, it says, Nevertheless. Nevertheless, and, and we're going to back up just a little bit because I want you to see a little bit of what was there before in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Look, look there with me, and we're going to look at Isaiah 8, 20 through 22, and then we'll look at the word nevertheless. It says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And they shall pass through it, and hardly bestead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and, the cur and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. And then he opens chapter 9, God and all of his inspiration, and he says, nevertheless. Though things were terrible and though there were uh, people who said there was no light in them, nevertheless... The dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously affect her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, and has and not increased the joy, and the joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. And men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for thou hast broken the yoke of this burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is confused with noise, and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire." For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and the name, uh, his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judge, judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Lord, thank you for just that great big conjunction you stuck in there, Lord. Nevertheless, Lord, we're so thankful that we get down to verse number six. For unto us a child is born. Lord, the power of the name of Jesus is remarkable. Lord, and we're thankful for all that you've done. And I pray that tonight as we gather as a church family and we are, we are reminded of the wonderful name of Jesus, that maybe there's one here tonight that has never called upon that name for salvation, that tonight they would before it's too late. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for this time to celebrate in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get too long, I want to just, uh, from far ahead, I just want to kind of back up and set a stage with you for the unfolding of this prophecy by Isaiah. And kind of understanding a little bit of the, the context and the time in which he lived and ministered. Isaiah ministered during the reign of four kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uzziah was a good king of a reputation most of his days. And Uzziah, Uzziah ascended the throne when he was only 16 years old and reigned longer than any previous king of Judah or Israel. 52 years he reigned. Probably he co-reigned with his father in the beginning and then his son Jotham as his co-regent during the final years as a leper. He was a wise, a pious, and powerful king. He extended Judah's territory. He brought the nation to a time of great prosperity. And truly, he was a, it was a good time to be in Israel. But Uzziah's heart was lifted up in pride in the end of his, his time there. And he wasn't satisfied with just being a mortal king, and he desired to be like his contemporaries. He wanted to be a divine king. He entered the temple to burn incense, and there he was struck by God uh, as uh, 80 associates uh, and the high priest confronted him. He responded in anger instead of repentance, and God judged him by giving him leprosy. Uzziah was forced to live the rest of his life in, in a separate place, in exile, if you will. Then his son Jotham, Jotham was a, good, a man of good reputation as well, and he ruled as co-regent with his father when it was discovered that Uzziah had leprosy, and his 18-year reign was a godly one, although the people persisted in idolatry. He was undoubtedly encouraged by the prophets Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah, who ministered during his reign as well. And listen what the Scripture says was the cause of his good reputation, 2 Chronicles 27, 6. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the, his God. Man, what a great time. What a great king. Then there was Ahaz. For those who are new to the Christian faith and new to the Bible, let me just say Ahaz was not like his father. 
He was not like his grandfather. He was not like King David. He was a wicked king. And he chose to worship false gods instead of celebrating Jehovah. He was an ungodly king who promoted the worship of Moloch with its pagan rites of human sacrifices. The reign of Ahaz overlapped the reign of his father Jotham and probably the reign of his own son Hezekiah. His age when he became king was 20 and he reigned 16 years. Ahaz stopped following in the ways of uh, the four relatively good kings that preceded him and he made images of Baal. He offered infant sacrifices in the valley of Hinnom and sacrificed on the high places. He came under further pagan influence at Damascus where he, uh, and uh, just continued down this terrible slide. He uh, saw and built a pagan altar there. He commanded Uriah the priest at Jerusalem to build a copy of it and then installed it next to the bronze altar in the Jerusalem temple. Not a good king. As a matter of fact, Ahaz was one of the most wicked kings that ever ruled in Judah. And then we follow a hot on the heels of this and I'm so amazed that God gave him a son named Hezekiah. Do you ever read through the kings and you get through there and you read about Ahaz and you come to the end of Ahaz's life and, and, and you get to his son's life and you read about Hezekiah and you think, how did that come from that? Uh, honestly, Ahaz, or excuse me, Hezekiah was a 13th king of Judah. He was born the son of Ahaz by Abbi. He was the daughter of, Zechari uh, the daughter of Zechariah. Hezekiah became known as one of Judah's uh, godly kings. It was, it's a, a great testimony and it's a great encouragement for as parents that an ungodly man like Ahaz could have such a godly son. This is the evidence of the grace of God. Hezekiah's father had given the kingdom to idolatry, but when Hezekiah came to the throne, he courageously and decisively initiated religious reforms. So thankful he had that desire. In the first year of his reign, Hezekiah reopened the temple doors. His father, his clothes, he assembled the priests and the Levites and commissioned them to sanctify themselves and to do service for the Lord and to cleanse the temple. They, they reinstituted appropriate, instituted appropriate sacrifices and there was much rejoicing. There was a great time to be alive during Hezekiah's reign. Hezekiah faced a golden opportunity to reunite the tribe spiritually and, and because the north Israel had fallen to Assyria in 722 B.C. And so Hezekiah invited the remnant to join the people of Jerusalem in opportunity opportunity to celebrate the Passover. Listen, this was a, a great time to be alive, but listen, when did all four of these kings were, uh, were uh, kings that Isaiah had ministered to during his time? And as we read Isaiah chapter 9, uh, many scholars believe that, that this, was, this was probably written about the time that Hezekiah was born. Ahaz was king, things were not that great, and, and some of them even say that, uh, which, which I disagree with, that this prophecy was written about Hezekiah, which I disagree with. It was written about Jesus Christ. Amen. These kings reigned more than 700 years before Jesus. And when the prophecy of Isaiah was written, it was, it was just a, a great, great opportunity for, us to, for them to look forward to something that would be so spectacular. And so he writes in verse number one, nevertheless. Though all of this evil has come and though there is darkness and there is no light in men, let me remind you, nevertheless. Let me tell you, God can do anything. Amen? God can do anything. 
And we're so thankful that, that God allows us to be able, as a church, to be reminded of this monumental truth. On the eve of Christmas, as we begin uh, the preparations this week for the celebration of the, of the birth of our Savior, we're reminded today that He can do anything. <coughs> Maybe I should warn you next time, Jeff. Sorry about that. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 2. It says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shine. What a description of our world today. People that have walked in darkness. The glorious part is the hope that comes next. They have seen a great light. And let me tell you, God says that uh, He wants the light to so shine in you and me. get an opportunity to have some smoke in the church. <coughs> All right. Sorry about that. He doesn't know when I'm coughing and when I'm not. So you get to enjoy it with me. All right. So as we see here, we see that there are great things happening. And, and the word nevertheless we see is a transformational moment in this passage. And the lost who are stumbling in the dark have found their way to the light. The joy has been made full in the presence of God and in the harvest. As, but we see here, all the way down through verses 1 through 5, just some tremendous things happening. Some tremendous things that are, that are transpiring in this moment. And, and just as, as all that, uh, that God begins to turn the, the table, we see the, the cause of it all when he gets to verse number 6. He says, for unto us. Why, was there, why is war being broken down? Why is there uh, things like this happening over and over? Why do we see uh, just such tremendous thing? He says, because a child is born. What a remarkable turning point when the child was born. When you see a newborn baby, what do you see? Do you see a warrior? Probably not. We don't see someone of power. We don't see someone of strength. We don't see someone with great majesty. Often what we see is a life that is vulnerable. We see a life that needs warmth, a life that needs protection, a life that needs to be nurtured. And the preciousness of life is seen in the frailty of that newborn babe. We love and value these cherished infants. Yet, how much more should we value the life of Jesus Christ? who when he became a child was delivered from his mother, mother's womb, he entered our world the same way we did. We have no way to understand the incredible humiliation that was involved when the Word became flesh. It is for us unfathomable to realize the reality that defies comprehension when the second person of the Trinity entered into humanity. Jesus will forever... And is forever eternally Lord, but He took on flesh. Amen. John 1, in the, be 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The infinite, infinitely powerful became weak. The wonderfully majestic became humble. The creator of the universe became one of us. The infinite, eternal, self-sustaining being who created every atom and everything in the universe and then put them all in their places, we see, became dependent upon the nourishment of his mother's milk and her loving touch. What, how remarkable to consider that truth tonight. 
As a child, the eternal Son was in a state of submission to the will of God the Father in heaven and as the guidance and rule of His parents on earth. And we see that this is a demonstration of the infinite love and the incredible humility that God says, let this mind be in you, in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So why did the Word, why did Christ come and be born a child? He became one to die for us. The power of the reality is He became like us to free us. He stayed with us to teach us. He died on the cross to set us free from the treachery and the consequences of sin. Not only in this world, but in the one to come. He didn't stay dead, but He rose from the grave to prove that His sin sacrifice was acceptable to God uh, the Father and to demonstrate what He said about God, sin, and redemption was true. In that child... The majesty of God, the glory of God, the omnipresence of God was in submission to the law in form of an infant child that could be held in the arms of his earthly mother. What an incredibly gracious and merciful gift we have received from God. John 8, 18 says, I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me bear witness of me. You see, the Word did not give up His deity when He joined the human nature. He became the person of Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man. And He operated and cooperated within the limitations of that humanity. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5 through 8. This is all by way of introduction, by the way. We'll get into the message here in just a second. But I want to just lay some of this groundwork with you because it's imperative that we kind of have the understanding and the groundwork before we see what it means to be called wonderful and counselor and the mighty God and the prince of peace and the everlasting father. And so Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." In this moment, when the Word became flesh, the eternal became mortal. The infinite became finite. The glory put on sandals. The majestic wore clothing. The Creator walked among us. Eternal love eternally became bleeding flesh. You see, the victories that have been realized, the power of salvation, the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, the soon return of Christ, the completed Word of God, all comes as a result of the fact that, Jesus, that, that that Christ child was born that wonderful night. And on this last part of verse number 6, we have some beautifully descriptive names for this precious child. And maybe not as much names as they are descriptions of his character and characteristics of his person. And because as we see here, maybe, maybe we call a, a newborn child beautiful or perfect or innocent or, or some of the, those things. We see that God uses some even more descriptive and beautifully uh, uh, descriptive names for us to describe the Messiah in this moment. And so let's look together, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6. He says, For unto us is born, uh, excuse me, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, say it, church, wonderful. Wonderful. Isn't his name wonderful? The word wonderful means to separate, to distinguish, or to really to make 
great. It's usually applied usually to anything that is uh, great or wonderful, like as a miracle. The proper idea of the, the word is miraculous. It points to the fact that uh, in his being, in his works, and all that he is, is truly in his nature is miraculous. And the, there's a couple other places we see this word used in the Old Testament, the same Hebrew word, Psalms chapter 118, verse 23. The Bible says, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The word marvelous is the same Hebrew word. Psalms chapter 139 and verse number 24. It says, And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. I don't think I got the right reference there. Forgive me on that one. But we see that it's used much, much more throughout Scripture. But these passages really, it really makes clear that, uh, that it's used to excite wonder, excitement, and, and anything that will correspond with this, uh, with this sense of awe. Uh, in regards to Jesus Christ. The Messiah was wonderful in all things. It was wonderful by the love, uh, it was wonderful love by which God gave him and by which he came. The manner of his birth was wonderful. His humility, his self denial, his sorrows, all of these were wonderful. As a matter of fact, his dying agonies were wonderful. His resurrection, his ascension were all fitted to excite admiration and wonder. It is wonderful. When we talk of, a, of the babe in the manger, let me just say he was absolutely wonderful. He goes on and he says he's called Wonderful Counselor. Some combine these together, but let me just say that uh, though the, these are sometimes expressed as wonderful counselor, I think there's a distinct attribute or quality set apart here in both of these because the word counselor denotes uh, one of an honorable rank or one who is fitted to stand near princes and kings as their advisor. It is expressive of great wisdom and of qualifications to guide and direct. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 22 we see here, as the Scripture says, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. What a great counselor he is. You know, I think about all the things that, uh, that our world goes through today and all the heartache and I think about all the families that are broken and the lives that are, uh, that are just going through great and intense pain and I just want to call you back to the great counselor we have today. Man, there's no one like Jesus Christ. He truly, the Old Testament calls Him a balm. There is a balm in Gilead. He is the one that soothes the broken soul. He is the one that can redeem the hearts that, that have been shattered to pieces. And let me just remind you that He is the one you need today. He goes on in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6, and He calls Him the mighty God. Literally, the mighty God of ages. He is the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Notice in another instance it speaks of the deity of Christ. In John 1, 1, once again it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In this moment, he's, uh, the, the name Mighty God is attributed to the true God. And, and, and this, in this verse we're seeing literally in the Old Testament that God is, is saying that Jesus Christ is God. I'm so thankful that tonight as a church we can say that we serve Jesus who is God. He is co-eternal and, and He is, uh, is co-equal with God the Father. 
The New Testament points to Christ being God as well. In John chapter 1 and verse number 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 20 and verse 28, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Hebrews 1.8, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. I tell you, he is the mighty God. There is none like him. There's no, there, he's not just a good man. If he was just a good man, then he would not be a good man. His claims to deity would make him an idiot and a, and a nut. But he's God. And so when he claims to be God, he does so because he is God. We can trust him. And we see here in the, last, in the next thing, he calls him the everlasting father. The, term used, uh, the Hebrew term is used uh, as uh, father in a great variety of senses. Uh, there's a little father, a grandfather, an ancestor, a ruler, an instructor. And the phrase is often used to denote the ownership of a certain thing. For example, the father of knowledge would mean they're intelligent. The father of glory would be glorious. And so the, the meaning of the phrase, the father of eternity, is properly in, uh, saying that Christ is eternal. Eternal. And that means there's no beginning and no ending. He is forever eternal. And tonight as we look at this, let me just remind you this, this Christmas, as we serve and we, we celebrate Jesus, He is the eternal God that we can serve together as a church. We don't have to wonder, is he alive today? I know he lives. I know he's alive today. In John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, what does he say? I am. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 17, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. We have a Christ that is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. What a wonderful truth that the Savior who was active in creation before time began, and He is the same one that today is still alive and at work in our hearts and in our church today. He lives, He lives, Jesus Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, He talks with me along the narrow way. I'm so thankful, I'm so glad to know today He lives. He is the Prince of Peace. This Hebrew expression denotes that He would be a peaceful Prince. The tendency of his administration would be to restore and to perpetuate peace. And this is what Jesus said while he was here on earth. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. There have been a, a mass of kings and princes through the years who have delighted in conquest, all with a price of blood. But here's Jesus Christ standing worlds apart from those kings who would desire to destroy, who would desire to conquer, who would desire to, to overcome all me, other men. Here's Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Jesus, who is the Messiah, who seeks to bring redemption through His own shed blood. Isaiah chapter 11 and verses 6 through 9, a prophecy that reminds us that He will end all war it says, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall leave them, and a cow and the bear shall feed their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice. Then they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Jewish nation as a whole missed the Messiah. They wanted a conquering king. They wanted some magnificent prince who would come in and deliver them from the barbaric hands of the Romans. Yet Christ is a prince of peace. He is the ruler who will usher in the, a thousand years uh, of peace. And one day we will see it. Luke chapter 2 verses 14. Uh, verse 14 says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The angels sang about it at his birth. His peace brings old, uh, he brings peace to those that are overwhelmed. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He brings peace when God through the blood uh, with God through the blood of his cross. In uh, Colossians chapter one and verse twenty, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. You see, Jesus Christ is truly the Prince of Peace. This Christmas, we get to celebrate something very unique, don't we? We get to celebrate a unique uh, Lord and Savior. Long ago, there ruled in Persia a wise and a good king. He loved his people. He wanted to know how they lived, and he wanted to know about their hardships. And often he dressed in the clothes of a working man or even a beggar, and he went to the homes of the poor. No one whom he visited thought he was their ruler. They all just assumed he was someone else, another poor man who lived, uh, lived just like they did. From time to time, he visited one particular very poor man who lived in a cellar. He ate coarse food with the poor man. He spoke cheerful and kind words to him, and then he left. Later, he visited the same man again, and he disclosed his identity by saying, I want you to know I'm your king. The king thought the man would surely ask for some gift or favor, but he didn't. Instead, he said, you left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark and dreary place. You ate the coarse food I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. To others, you have given your rich gifts. To me, you have given yourself. You see, our God has given himself to us. Maybe you look at the world and you see all the glories of the world and you think, man, I wish I had this or I wish I had that or I wish my life was more like theirs. The beautiful thing is you may be like that poor man living in a cellar, but God himself has come down. God himself and his, his grace and his mercy has chosen to live with you. He has given himself. Christmas has become a commercialized frenzy of crazy people who trample each other to get the best deal. Aren't you thankful for electronic buying nowadays? I don't have to worry about getting trampled at Amazon.com shopping cart. But let me just say, let us not forget who Christ is this Christmas. The world may pine and look for peace in the midst of all the parties and all the, the get-togethers and all the things, but listen, let me tell you, they're missing the mark. Only Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, can bring peace to a heart. 
Only Jesus Christ can truly make a life wonderful. Only Jesus Christ can truly guide a life through, through a, a time of intense pain and, and, and difficult struggle because He is the great counselor. It is only Jesus who is the mighty God. It is only Jesus who is the everlasting Father. And let me just say that He is the only one that can bring peace to that hurting heart. What about tonight? I'm thankful for what He has done for us in our church in our life. But what about you? This Christmas, I invite you even tonight, maybe moms and dads, you want to grab your families and say, listen, we want to just start this week of Christmas special, a brand new tradition for our family. And I invite you in church, and just, I, this is just the Lord laid this on my heart. Let's do this together. Let's families, moms and dads, come to the altar or right there in the pew during this invitation time, why don't we say, Lord, this year we want to make our lives yours. Lord, this year we want to make sure Jesus Christ is, is felt and sensed and known in, in our house in such a way that we've never experienced His presence before. That He become, comes before everything else. That all of the, the hype and the presence and the gifts, those things don't even hit the radar in comparison to the majesty and the glory of our great Savior. Let's do that together tonight. Can we do that, church?